All right, so we're going to be in John chapter 16 this morning. Um, just a few verses. I had a bit of a bit of challenge with verses 8 to 11, so I'd appreciate your continued prayers for me each week as I study and prepare that I would have wisdom and and um, humility before God's word, and He would use it every week in the lives of His people. So, in chapter 15. Uh, really, we entered a new kind of a phase in Jesus' discourse as he's going to go to the cross. It's the night before his, his crucifixion, the night of his betrayal. And in chapter 15, as he speaks to his disciples, he, he introduces this theme on the one hand of bearing lots of fruit in the world. And on the other hand, of being hated and persecuted by the world. And uh, I, I, I don't know about you, but for me, I, I need that constantly repeated to me. <laughs> um, because it's so easy to focus on one side or the other. We've seen on the one hand, we, we must not be guilty, and perhaps some of us are. All of us have been at times, maybe, guilty of a misguided pessimism and defeatism that causes us to forget we've been appointed to bear much fruit in the world, that God has a task for us and that he goes before us and that the fruit that we bear will remain and abide forever. That's, that's, that's heady stuff, right? That's, that's full of hope and, and optimism. And, and yet on the other hand, we must not let that reality then cause us to be guilty of a misguided optimism. Or triumphalism, that all is well and we're on one continuous path to glory, right? So there's going to be no troubles in the meantime. That will, if we get in that spot, boy, are we going to be surprised and overwhelmed. And perhaps, as Jesus was warning against, falling away when we find that we're hated and persecuted by the world. So fruit-bearing and persecution, love and hatred. These things must be held together in tension, always, always. Um, On the one hand, we can retreat into a bubble. On the other hand, we can go out and begin compromising everything in order that the world might love us, right? And in order that we might bear fruit. And yet, what is fruit if it's the fruit of compromise? So as we're about to see, the disciples don't understand these things yet. And so we pick up again this morning in chapter 16, the first, second half of verse 4, and Jesus says to his disciples, These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. As I said to my family this morning, this is one of those places where we are reminded of how deeply personal this is. Um, it's easy for us to read this as like a formal discourse. And Jesus is giving this formal uh, lecture to his disciples. And to us, it's for everyone, kind of impersonally, to the whole Christian church. But no, Jesus is there talking to these men that he loves personally. And so as he speaks with them, He says this, these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. 
So, in other words, until now, Jesus hasn't spoken to his disciples about suffering, not very much anyway, not to this detail, or about persecution. And the reason is because as long as Jesus was with the disciples, no one cared about the disciples. Right? They, they were irrelevant. So there was no danger, there was no threat of suffering or persecution for them. The world directed its hatred against Jesus overlooking the disciples, and so the assumption is this. This is the way it works. Get rid of the leader. Get rid of Jesus. And then, yeah, all his followers will come to nothing. Right? That's what they were thinking. While Jesus was with them, the disciples were, we could put in quotation marks, they were safe. Now Jesus is going away. He's going to leave them. And all that hatred that has so far been directed exclusively at Jesus. They've just kind of skated by. It's been directed at Jesus. It's about to expand and and take in all those who profess to be Jesus' disciples. In other words, think about this. You know, what's going to happen is they're going to think they got rid of Jesus. And as far as they know, they did. But then all of Jesus' disciples are not scattered, and they don't come to nothing. Now what? Now the hatred of the world for Jesus that culminated in the cross and is even now about to culminate in the cross. It's, it's here. It's the moment. It will continue on in the hatred of the world for those who follow Jesus as their risen and ascended Lord in your handout. Do you see what that means? When Jesus speaks of the world's coming hatred for his disciples. When he says, the world's going to hate you, do you know what he's promising? That's a promise. Not just a promise of hatred. It's the promise in so many words of that his own continued presence with his disciples. Because why else would the world hate them? If Jesus was dead and the disciples come, who do the disciples have to follow now? The very fact of our discipleship that I... Timothy, am a disciple of Jesus. Can you be a disciple of a dead person? I do, I do not claim to be the disciple of a dead person. I claim to be the disciple of a living Lord and Savior. And so that very fact of my and of our discipleship and of the world's hatred of us on that account is evidence that Jesus is not dead, but is alive. I want to just point this out, brothers and sisters, and this is what we're going to need to remember this morning. Christianity is not a religion built on the teachings of a dead man. I know we know that, and I've known it, but all of a sudden it just hit me, and I hope it hits you right now. How many other religions are there that are built on a man? At, you know, at some level, I know Jesus is not just a man. But the reality is, no other religion claims that the man they built their religion on is living alive in the flesh today. Christianity does. Christianity is built on personal discipleship to a living Lord. That's an amazing, wonderful thing. And so I trust that as you live out your Christian faith, You are personally discipled to a living Lord. 
Until now, the disciples have been safe because Jesus was with them in the flesh. Uh, He's going to say when he leaves, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But he's going to be with them in a different way. So that's why until now, Jesus has not spoken to the disciples about being hated and persecuted. Now, I want to ask you a question. Maybe you've already thought of this. Well, couldn't Jesus have said something to them earlier? Right? I mean, the sooner you say something, maybe the more time they have to prepare for this. And now you're just springing this on them, we could, we could say? Well, he, he could have. Jesus could have said that. But what would it have accomplished? He could have said these things earlier, but what does that accomplish? Number one, Jesus has not led them on. He hasn't deceived them. He hasn't hidden from his disciples the fact that the Jewish leaders hate him and his own rejection by the world. The disciples have seen that. So, so they, it's not like they have this idea of uh, you know, a bed of roses or a life of ease from now until the end. But at the same time, if Jesus had said all these things to the disciples earlier, they wouldn't have been any better prepared or any better off. Jesus says even now that he says these to them only so that when their hour comes, the disciples might remember then that I already said these to you ahead of time. So really, it's, it's almost like Jesus only says it to you now so that they'll remember he said it to them later. What do you think the result would have been if three years earlier at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus told the disciples, the world's going to hate you and they're going to think they're doing God a service when they kill you and put you out of the synagogues. What happens to the disciples then? Well, one, either they're completely uncomprehending or they're ready to take up swords or they're overwhelmed with confusion and fear. Jesus knows that. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. They didn't need to know it then. They couldn't handle it then. So I like what John Calvin writes. He says, as the apostles were still weak and tender. (laughs) Oh, how many of us feel weak and tender? So long as Christ conversed with them in the flesh, their singularly good and indulgent master spared them and did not suffer them to be urged beyond what they were able to bear. I always think of when when God uh, brought Israel out of Egypt and it, it says he did not send them this way Because lest they see war and turn back. He brought them around the long way. Because God knew the state and the condition of his people. Jesus here knows the state and the condition of his disciples. And so I would just say to us, see again the tender care of Jesus for his disciples. Whom he knows intimately. And so also his tender care for us. Remember, when you read the scriptures, don't read them detached. Read them, them, number one, this discourse as as a teacher speaking to his disciples that he loves. But then also read these scriptures then as an example of his tender care for you. 
and his care and his love for you. See again also in your handout the perfect patience of Jesus with his disciples. And so also his perfect patience with us. Sometimes do we not wonder how God puts up with us? Why for so long he bears with us? These things I did not say to you at the beginning. Because I was with you. And so now we could say, well, you still could have said it to him. But now we know why he didn't. <laughs> he didn't say it to them because he to say these things to them then because he knew they couldn't handle it yet. Continue in verse 5, but now I am going to him who sent me. Now something interesting happens here. On the one hand, Jesus is explaining, oh, you want to know why I'm telling you these things now? Because I'm not going to be with you anymore because I'm going away, right? I'm, going to, I'm leaving you. I'll no longer be with you. But it's important to notice that's not actually what Jesus says. He's, now watch this. He just said, I didn't say these things to you at the beginning because I was with you. Now we would expect him to say, but now I'm not going to be with you. That's not what he says. Although that's true to a point. I mean, but it's not what he says. He doesn't say, but now I'm no longer going to be with you. He says instead, but now I am going to him who sent me. That's what he says. He does not emphasize who he's leaving, but in your handout, where and to whom he is going. (laughs) Doesn't that not change everything? So this isn't meant only as an explanation of why Jesus is saying these things now, though it is that. Jesus intends this preeminently as an awesome. I, I usually try to avoid the word awesome because of it, it doesn't have too much meaning anymore. But sometimes you just have to use it because if you use it right, it's what you need. Awesome. Encouragement and comfort. What does it mean when Jesus goes to the one who sent him? We've been in John long enough now that you should recognize this kind of language. So we remember when Jesus said earlier in this gospel, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So let me ask you then, what does it mean if Jesus is going back? It means that he has fully accomplished the work he was sent to do. Jesus said in chapter 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, nothing, but raise it up on the last day. So when Jesus goes back to the one who sent him, what does that mean? It must mean, and I loved just typing this out and anticipated saying it, it must mean that we are now eternally secure in Jesus' hands. Not that there was not eternal security in the Old Testament, but we know security today in a way that they didn't. We are held in the hands of Jesus. Not to mention the hands of his Father, right? This must mean that our future salvation 
which we have not yet arrived at, is fully assured and guaranteed. Jesus has said these things explicitly right here in this very discourse. So we read in John 14, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go, see there's this I go, to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, if I do, I will come again. But I have to go in order for that to happen. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. A little later on in the same chapter, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Again, in chapter 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Why does Jesus say to his disciples, but now I am going to him who sent me? Is it just to tell him, now this is why I'm telling you about suffering now. This is why I'm finally getting around to telling you that you'll be hated. Is that all? No, it's not only to explain why he says these things to them now, but also so that in the very midst of these warnings, they might be supremely comforted. Supremely. Encouraged, strengthened, filled with even joy. But but problem... (laughs) The disciples, they hear in Jesus' words, in Jesus' words, they hear, instead of a cause for joy, only a cause for sorrow. So we read in verses 5 to 6, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Uh, I just want us to see that when he says sorrow has filled your heart, the idea is that sorrow has filled their heart, leaving no room for any other emotion. No room for any other thought. So sorrow has so filled their hearts, they have no room for joy of any kind. They have no room for hope. Now, how are we to explain the fact that the very words Jesus intends as a cause for joy are received by the disciples as a cause for the opposite? Who messed up here? Jesus or the disciples? Right? Who, who, who has the problem? In your handout, they receive it as the cause for sorrow. To answer that question, let's ask another question. Okay. How can Jesus say, none of you asked me, where are you going? When just this very evening... Just a few minutes earlier, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus said, none of you asked me, where are you going? Peter said, Lord, where are you going? Thomas 
himself asked, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? So I'm just going to take a little detour here for a moment before we come back. Some people see this as an irreconcilable contradiction in the scriptures and therefore proof that there must be different what we'll call literary sources behind John's gospel that don't always agree. In other words, whoever's writing John, whether they think it's John or an editor or some other author, whoever's doing it is just pulling from all these sources because they're writing later on in time. They're not quite as early as John would have been. So they're writing later on and they're pulling from all these written literary sources and they're kind of cutting and pasting it all together and creating this gospel. Well, if that's the case, then yeah, we have to assume that whoever put John together was pretty reckless. Like literally throwing together, they're just saying you're taking a source, a source, a source, and pasting it. Well, any honest reading of John is going to prove that is impossible. I hope as we've gone through John, that seems preposterous to you. We've seen the beauty, the, the unity. The, the, we've seen the inspiration of Scripture. Every Sunday we see the inspiration of Scripture. The perfect wisdom of God manifested in his word. The author of John has carefully crafted this gospel to make it a single whole. So then that leaves the critics with only one option. They must conclude that the author or the editor of John accidentally missed this contradiction. Now, whenever you come to a contradiction, you're like, whoa, that seems like a contradiction. Ask yourself, if you saw it, is it likely the author saw it? That's a really good way to go about things. Because then when you ask yourself, is it likely the author saw it? You say, yeah, probably. Then you say, well, I must be missing something. Right? To say that John or the editor, or whoever wrote this gospel, missed the fact that just a chapter earlier, or two chapters earlier, Peter asked, where are you going? Jesus says, none of you asked where I'm going, is really unfair and incredible. The fact of the matter is, the author of John knew about that formal contradiction. The words contradict. But sometimes you've got to get unstuck on words. It was a formal contradiction, but he did nothing to fix it. Why? Because it wasn't a real contradiction. Therefore, the preservation, I just want to, as I come to this, now we're going to come back to it, but, but the preservation of this formal contradiction, the fact that we have this contradiction in Scripture, and of other seeming contradictions, is almost always, and actually is always, just further proof of the integrity and accuracy of the biblical record. Because if it was someone just inventing it, it was a fraud, they would have been wanting, I don't want this, let's take that out, let's make it match better. But that's not what happens. This is a real historical record of real life. And so these contradictions actually only prove the accuracy and the reliability of God's holy word. All right. Now we're going to come back to see why, what's happening here. What's the explanation? Jesus did not emphasize who he's leaving, but where and to whom he's going. Do you see the difference? Not, he doesn't say, now I'm going to leave you. I'm not going to be with you. You're not gonna, I'm not, I mean, he does tell them that. But that's not what he says here. He emphasizes, now this is where I'm going. 
The disciples, on the other hand, are not nearly so concerned with where or to whom Jesus is going as they are with the simple fact that he's leaving. Right? It's simple. Jesus says, focus on where I'm going. The disciples say, all I I hear is you're leaving. And so when they ask where you're going, all they're asking is, why are you leaving? (laughs) That's, That's all they mean. And we know this because Jesus has repeatedly already told them where he's going. <laughs> he already said it. So Jesus knows when you ask me, you're not really concerned with where I'm going because I've already told you. Right. But he, he wasn't as impatient as I am. We know this because of that. And even right now, here in these verses, Jesus begins by telling his disciples yet again, right now, here, right in this spot, he says, but now I am going to him who sent me. That's where I'm going. Therefore, when Jesus continues in the very next breath, or even the same breath, and he says, and none of you ask me, where are you going? You, you, you just said, I'm going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where am I going? His point is this. Here's the point, brothers and sisters. None of you are really concerned or really care where it is that I am going or why I am going there. Your minds are still too consumed with the the temporal interests of man. Not, Not necessarily sinful interests. I'm not talking about necessarily sinful in and of themselves, but the temporal interests of men with temporal earthly priorities. And so, brothers and sisters, in the midst of all Jesus' infinite patience with his disciples and all his tender care for his disciples, there is also gentle but but a bit of a stinging rebuke and reproof in Jesus' words. Reproof for the disciples and reproof for you and for me this morning. If the disciples were really focused on understanding, okay, Jesus, you're making a big deal about where you're going. Okay, let me just focus in on that for a moment. If they were focused on that and what this would mean for them and for the kingdom and for the whole future course of human history, right? How could their hearts be so filled with sorrow? I'm not saying they could have got it all. Remember the date on the calendar? That's still in play. But how could their hearts be so filled with sorrow? That was inappropriate. Even at that date on the calendar. How could their hearts be so taken over with sorrow? It's, I'll say this now. It's one thing to be sorrowful because something sorrowful has happened. That's expected. So even if the disciples had perfect insight and perfect knowledge of what the sufferings and death of Jesus were going to mean, should we expect that when he suffered and died, they would have no sorrow? Of course not. They would experience sorrow. But it's another thing to be sorrowful precisely because of something that's good. Something that's good news and that is actually intended to cause my joy. What happened? The disciples can only see in Jesus' words 
a sorrowful, even a foreboding farewell. But when Jesus says, when Jesus says, but now I am going to him who sent me, what do they hear? They hear only, but now I am going away from you. Do you, what, what, what's your state of, uh, what's your opinion of the disciples at this point? Are you feeling sorry for them? I, I do. Are you upset with them? I am. Are you frustrated? Yes. Do you sympathize? Yes. <laughs> we see it now. They're not yet able to see that even as this farewell brings with it separation, so it will also be the key to Christ's spiritual presence with them. And they, they could have gotten some of that, even they don't get it all. And also the key to their being finally gathered together to be with Jesus forever. I go away and I'll come again and take you to myself. Right? They're not yet able to see that even as this farewell will bring with it suffering and persecution, yes it will, so it will also be the key to their true lasting joy and the triumph of Christ's kingdom. And so we just put it this way, God's ways are not our ways. That's what gets us into trouble, is we don't understand that. The temporal interests of man are not the interests of God. And some of us are willing to just throw up our hands, and I guess I'm going to go through the rest of life frustrated, right? Or how many of us can come to this and say, oh, Lord, Change my heart to value the interests and the priorities that you have. So we read in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 16, certainly this is the famous passage. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, is Peter just being a total carnal pagan when he says this? No, he, he's sincere in his devotion to Jesus. He loves God, but he is just very, very, very misguided. So Jesus turns and he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. That's how misguided. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God. What is that? The eternal resurrection glory of Jesus, but on the things of man. The temporal, earthly glory of Jesus. We could say, why didn't Peter hear Jesus? Didn't Jesus say, and be raised from the dead? Didn't Jesus say that? Couldn't Peter hear that? No, he can't. And we should not be too quick to judge because in our minds we are so focused on the temporal interests of man we can't even hear. We can't even hear sometimes or see clearly what are the interests of God. But when we can come to embrace the ways and the interests of God and just to see all of life through his eyes, as it were, okay, then the sorrow that fills our heart will always be replaced with fullness of joy. Remember, that's not to say there's no room for sorrow. But I'm saying the sorrow that fills our heart, that takes over, will always be replaced with fullness of joy. As the dominating condition of our heart. The dominating condition of our heart. 
John 14, 28, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Not rejoiced momentarily, but lived now in a state of rejoicing because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. On that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. So I just want to say this, that Jesus has said things to us. He says things to us to sober us. Sometimes we need sobering. He says things to us to caution us. We need cautioning. To reprove us, we need reproof. But let me just say that, see in the word of God and know of God and, 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 and our Savior Jesus, he has never said anything to us, his children, in order to fill our hearts with sorrow. Never. Why then are the disciples' hearts filled with sorrow? Because of what Jesus said to them. All that Jesus has ever said to us, ever, is intended solely for our happiness and joy. And I use the word happiness because joy sometimes just sounds too out there. I mean happiness, but not happiness conditioned by fleeting, changing circumstances. True biblical happiness. Okay? Christians can be happy. If, if joyful works for you, the good. Good. Because there is a danger in the word happy. Why then are the disciples' hearts filled with sorrow when Jesus says this to them? Because even in the midst of their devotion to Jesus, and that's what we need to see, they're not carnal pagans. They're disciples of Jesus. And seemingly, even as an expression of their, I'm so devoted to you, Jesus, that I'm filled with sorrow because of what you said. And they're still setting their minds not on the things of God, but on the things of man. So now Jesus continues in verse 7. But I tell you the truth. Let me know. But I tell you the truth. Right? Despite whatever else the disciples may think. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Okay, Jesus isn't saying the Holy Spirit's going to be a better advocate than he was. Like Jesus messed up or failed at some level, Holy Spirit will be better. No, he's only saying that the disciples will not be left without an advocate. And that in fact... The coming of this other advocate that's about to come is going to be a really good thing because that is going to be tied together with his own enthronement at the right hand of God. Okay? So he's saying, if that doesn't happen, I'm not going to send the advocate. The advocate's not going to come to you, which means I'm not going to be seated at the Father's right hand. Right? So already Jesus has said in chapters 14 and 15, Jesus is reaching back and taking all sorts of things that he's just said, even in, this dis- even in this very discourse. He says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, that he may be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. You know him because he abides with you and will be in you. 
These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will bear witness also because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away to him who sent me. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. Fourth time. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, I want to put, look, at, look at some parallels in these verses. And I think I, yeah, I did put these on the PowerPoint too. In the first passage, Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. We come to the next one and it says, Jesus speaks of the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Notice the relationship. The Father sends both times. In the first case, Jesus asks. In the second case, the Father sends in Jesus' name. Now in the third passage, Jesus speaks of when the advocate will come and says, whom I will send to you from the Father. Now, if Jesus is sending the advocate from the Father, where is Jesus? Yeah. He's, he's with the Father. In our text this morning, Jesus says, If I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Where's Jesus? Where is he if he's sending the Spirit? In short, the coming of this other advocate is going to be the result of Jesus ascending into heaven as one of us. As the risen substitutionary sacrifice who died in our place. It's going to be the result of his enthronement at the Father's right hand. And so it will be through the Spirit's presence with and in his disciples that Jesus will shepherd his people and rule over them as their king. It's going to be through the Spirit's presence, which has continued till this day, His presence, He is present among us, in each one of us as temples of the Holy Spirit. He's present here, in this temple built of living stones. And so it's through the Spirit's presence with and in His disciples that Jesus will empower them, Jesus empowers them to go and bear much fruit in the midst of a world that's going to hate and persecute them even to the death. And it's going to be through the Spirit's presence with and in his disciples that who? That Jesus' kingdom will spread to all the nations of the earth. The coming of the Holy Spirit then is the sign that Messiah's kingdom is here. That Jesus is enthroned right now at the Father's right hand that indeed all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Therefore, do we see? Do we see, even if on the night of Jesus' betrayal, the disciples didn't see the truth, the awesome truth in these words. Listen now, brothers and sisters, just listen to these words. It is to your advantage that I go away. Why does Jesus need to tell us that? Because in our flesh, in our temporal ways of thinking, We think it is not to our advantage. 
It's like when, it, it's certainly, it, it's like when a, when a parent says what a kid doesn't want to hear. This is for your own good, right? But Jesus says this, and, and, and we, know, we know the truth of it. It is to your advantage. Whoa, okay, that's not the way I think. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Here, I just want to quote just real quick from Calvin, because he says, We must not put the question, Could not Christ have drawn down the Holy Spirit while he remained on earth after his resurrection? Right? Is that the kind of questions we love to ask? Right. Well, wait a minute. I mean, let's say Jesus went to the cross, he was raised from the dead, and then he stayed on earth, but also brought the Holy Spirit. Well, we could work at giving a long theological answer to that question. But honestly, I feel like that's a waste of time. And so did Calvin. He says, for Christ takes for granted all that has been decreed by the Father. So must we. We don't need to ask about what ifs. Couldn't Jesus have done that? Or possibilities. When God has revealed to us his will and his plan. So to ask such questions, as Calvin says, he says it would be foolish and pernicious. And I have no desire to be called a fool or pernicious. Instead, here's the thing. We can rest our minds wholly in what God has decreed in his infinite wisdom for his own eternal glory and for our eternal salvation. Is that good enough for you? Don't you love to say yes? Yes. Oh, how vain and futile and barren are questions that flow from idle curiosity. I feel like that might be worth saying again. How vain and idle, and, and, and maybe that last word is most important, how barren are questions that flow from idle curiosity. How much better it is to rest our minds in what God has decreed in his infinite wisdom for his own eternal glory and for our own eternal salvation. Do we see then, do we see that it's to our advantage Jesus has gone away and are we able then now to wait with patience and with fullness of joy even in the midst of hatred and persecution for the day when he returns and takes us to be with himself, to be with him where he is. Are our hearts filled with sorrow, or do we have true fullness of joy? Now, when I ask that question, you might say, well, I mean, I don't know. It's every, day, every day is different. I'm on a continuum. Um, but what I mean is, what is the dominating thought of your heart? What is the dominating, I don't want to use the word emotion, but I don't know what other, what is the dominating feeling, thought, uh, controlling factor in your heart? Is it sorrow or is it joy? 
Are our hearts cold and complacent toward the present reign of Christ through his spirit? Or are they full of love and zeal for his kingdom? Have we set our minds on the things of man? Or have we set our minds on the things of God? Maybe most helpful would be to ask a question like this. To what extent could we say that our Christianity is essentially a following of Jesus. And now remember, this is a, it's a following of Jesus only according to his flesh. As though Jesus were not truly living and reigning today at God's right hand. As though we were disciples of someone who's dead. And not disciples to a living, ruling Savior. A weak and anemic Christianity, assuming it's a true Christianity. And to what extent, on the other hand, could we say that our Christianity is a following after Jesus according to the power of his present resurrection life? And do we see and know the difference between these two things? So Paul writes in Colossians, which our brother Ed just preached on a few weeks ago, read verses 1 to 4. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, and we have even less of an excuse than the disciples had for our hearts to be filled with sorrow, right? Because, you know, we look back, the date on the calendar brings with it accountability. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above. Uh, on, on the priorities above. So I can set my mind on the things above and take that mentality to every part of my life. It's very practical. Not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So, what a transformation was worked in the disciples when they finally grasped these things. It was when they grasped this great truth that even after being flogged and ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus, they could then go on their way doing what? Rejoicing. That they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on preaching, teaching, and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So let us then set our minds on the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And let us do that knowing this, knowing that when Christ, who is my life, who is your life, is revealed, then we also will be revealed with him in glory. In short, right, may our hearts never be filled with sorrow. Never. You know what I mean by that now. There's room for sorrow. But may our hearts never be filled with sorrow. But even in the midst of sorrow, may they always have a true fullness of joy. Primarily today, because we know to whom Jesus went. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we...
we come to you and we 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 confess um, our our need to be fed the truths of your word. We confess our 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 temporal um, focus, even if it's not intrinsically innately sinful. Yet we become so focused on the temporal that we're even unable, uh, incapable of seeing as you see and of truly coming to value the priorities that, that you would set for us of seeking first your kingdom. Lord, may the words that Jesus has spoken to us never be the cause of sorrow in us for we know that they have never been intended to do such a thing. But even in their reproof, even in their cautioning, even in their sobering purposes, may his words always and only ultimately fill us with joy. Lord, we rejoice today in where Jesus has gone to and in the advocate he has sent. We rejoice, we praise you, we give you honor and glory. And pray now that as we sing together, we will continue now in worship, responding to the word you have spoken, and prepare our hearts to take of the Lord's, Lord's Supper. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.